I took uh, about a hundred a hundred thousand dollars, which was saved up over a long period of time, and scaled that into you know three hundred plus property portfolio by doing that burst strategy, literally over and over and over again, recycling the same capital. So I took all the lessons learned through that process, starting off from like everybody does, school of hard knocks, taking your money, hiring the cheapest contractor you can, having them run off with forty grand. And then waking up and saying, whoa, I got to get serious or I'm going to be out of this game. Welcome, everybody, to the show. We're joined today by Brian Grimes. Brian is the founder of 24-7 Cashflow University. He's got a heck of a background and he is focusing now on a, a course <clears throat> that is specializing in a few nuanced areas that I'm super interested to dive into. They're really highly specialized um, in both the asset types and the locations. There's some unique uh, ripples to what Brian is doing. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of value today for, for the listeners, certainly for myself. Brian, really appreciate you coming on today. No, thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. So you're a certified financial planner. That's right. Certified financial planner. So went through that uh, coursework. I spent some time um, kind of working on Wall Street, managing money for millionaires. I worked at a boutique firm right at, right out in uh, Midtown where we managed about $1.3 billion for 300 families. So did that for a while. I've done the startup thing as well. Um, my my uh, Part of my background and, and passion definitely during that time was in the insurance space. So I worked at a startup called Policy Genius, which is pretty big now. Uh, in the insurance startup space, worked in their call center, kind of built that out, uh, led the call center team there. We were selling insurance nationally all over the phone, all through the internet, uh, but then made the jump from there into real estate full-time, which is my uh, 100%, you know, all-consuming passion that kind of just took me away from everything else. So, um, you know, there, there always seems to be common threads here. So you, you spent 10 years um, you, know, you you have over 10 years now of investing in experience. You worked as an option trader um, clerk at the Mercantile, I believe. And yeah. you, you had worked your way up into what was, I think, 1.3 billion was the number. Uh, yeah. The firm was managing for a few hundred family, I guess, family offices or families. At yeah, the just time. families, yeah. Uh, you've, you graduated from Columbia. You have a hell of a background. Uh, what what was it that prompted you to say, oh, I'm done with, you know, building that career and I'm going <laughs> to jump into something brand new? Yeah, um, real estate was kind of, it was always my plan. It was what I was, you know, always kind of how, how I saw myself I was destined to do. Uh, everything else that I was doing uh, was was always to get money, get more capital to put into real estate. Both of my parents were entrepreneurial. So growing up, um, you know, both of my parents essentially work for themselves. So I kind of, my earliest memories are like sitting in the back seat. Um, my father's working for, for Xerox at the time, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, he's a regional sales manager. So he's just ripping and running all across the state of New Jersey. And, you know, he had to gift the gab. He's always on the phone. He's always selling. So I was kind of a, addicted to that, um, that freedom, that financial freedom, that lifestyle of being your own boss. So I knew even at Columbia University, they kind of railroaded people who were in um, the econ field into that investment banking type of path, which is a, 
I mean, it's a serious grind, right? 18 hour days. Um, and I knew that what I wanted to do, if I was going to put in that type of time, I wanted to be my own boss kind of from day one. So I got into that financial planning field where I could control my time, control my hours. And I kept building towards putting all my money in real estate so that that cash flow that came from the real estate could support me and I would be able to continue to build and kind of be my own boss. So it was really, it was really all about uh, real estate, even though, you know, when you're coming from Columbia University, people are doing amazing things. Uh, people are going into fields like investment banking and making tons of money, um, you know, right out of college. But I, I knew I wanted to uh, put that time into residual income and financial freedom. So did you have any mentors along the way that were in the real estate space or? I had one. Uh, well, I had a, a couple, but one in particular, he uh, he played basketball at Columbia University. I got connected to him through the, the basketball alumni. And he uh, he he does commercial real estate for Bank of America. So he's, I think he's up at the SVP level. Some of his partners are like Magic Johnson, T.D. Jakes, yep. you know, some big, uh, you know, commercial real estate players. And he he would mentor me, you know, a bit. We still talk to this day. And he gave me some of my best principles. My favorite principle uh, that he gave me, well, there are two. One was jump in a net will appear. Um, and that was transformative for me in my early 20s because, uh, you know, you're afraid, right? You're afraid to take that leap of faith. You don't know that there's a safety net down there because you can't see it. It's kind of too far down. So you have to take a leap, you know, off of that mountain and trust that your energy, your focus is going to support you. It's going to catch at some point. You're going to spring back up and then uh, get your footing. So he he kind of pushed me into that. We talked a lot about portable equity. So, um, you know, you're working at some of these jobs, these nine to five jobs, and there's equity that you can take with you and equity that you can't. So a lot of people are building equity at these nine to fives where they have a great reputation. The boss likes them, the people like them, but if they got fired or downsized or lost that job, they can't take that reputation with them to the next place. So we always talked about portable equity, getting credentials, kind of getting the most out of, out of that. And from a real estate uh, perspective, when I told him, hey, I want to get into affordable housing, um, section eight some properties and kind of, you know, really get into the into the, uh, the the grit there. He gave me this principle. He said, listen, if you're going to do that, here's what I want you to do. Buy where, you know, rent to who, you know. And you'll always be successful. And what he meant by that was buying neighborhoods that are similar to the neighborhood that you grew up in uh, or that you're familiar with, that you've walked around in at some point in, uh, in your life. Rent to people who are like you now or were like you when you were growing up or who went to the types of schools that you went to, people who connect with you. And if you do those two things, you'll always be successful. And I followed that to the T. And that was that has been one of my my, uh, you know, major crutches that I've always leaned on. It's definitely run true over the years. And I think that's a principle that anybody in real estate should be following. If you get away from that principle, you typically lose uh, a lot of money and, and burn out and get out of the business. So I, I love the portable equity thing. Um, yeah, especially in the space you came from. Oftentimes it's it's too late. You, 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 you're right. You're building equity, but that ain't your equity. That's the firm's equity. That's that the firm's equity. Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> come with you. And, and when you're in the grind, I have a lot of friends that, that came out of that space. When you're in the grind, just like in, in any grind, you don't see it, right? You, you think that yeah. it's yours and, and it's not. Yeah. And, that, and that's a harsh lesson, right? If you put in five, 10 years somewhere, 
yeah. then you're out the door and you don't have anything to show for it. I, you know, that's why I got the CFP credential. I knew, hey, if I'm out of here or I go to do the next thing, I'm going to be a certified financial planner and the firm paid for it. Uh, I just had to put in that, that, you know, sweat equity and put that work in. So it's definitely. So when you were working on this, this portfolio, were you uh, involved in any real estate placements at that point, or was it all stocks, bonds, and, and that, that sort of fun stuff? Everything we were doing was all stocks, bonds, uh, you know, passive investments, um, kind of all, all of that type of stuff. No real estate um, exposure from the firm. The real estate piece was really, you know, I grew up, one of my best friends that I went to high school with, he was uh, just always a- addicted to real estate for whatever reason. He was reading uh, at that time the Donald Trump books and the rich dad, poor dads and whatever he could get his hands on uh, real estate wise. And being my one of my best friends, all we would talk about is real estate. So we would talk every day. We talk for hours every day and it's all real estate. So that kind of got him in and definitely me in uh, right after him. He graduated before me. And then once I graduated, uh, I, I kind of knew that was how I was going to get into real estate. And that was where um, that was what kind of got me into the field, I would say, from a studying perspective, getting my knowledge together. It was really just taking that time. I tell people all the time, all of my students, it took me two years, even after I graduated. I probably was studying for five years before that, but two years of just studying, focus, saving before I even bought my first property. So, you know, a lot of people want to have that get rich quick overnight type of feel uh, to real estate and they want to jump in, but, or they get discouraged because they feel like they're not moving fast enough. I didn't move that fast, but I made sure my first deal, you know, was a great deal. I started making a thousand dollars a month in cash flow on my very first deal. And when you do that on your first deal, you're going to be successful long-term. So two things you touched on that are just absolute pillars of the real estate world delayed gratification number one right absolutely and being a lifelong learner putting in the time there are so many amazing books uh we have a book club here in the office now and you know we started to to recognize is we wanted to make more and more investments in in our people as people you know in real estate you tend to get very system-based, right? And you're always upgrading infrastructure and you're adding this and you're updating that and you're, you know, developing, you know, what, you know, neat new ways to, to build a better mousetrap. And you forget that you can layer only so many systems on people. And if they don't have the right foundation, if they don't have some sort of a, a grounding in financial literacy, that it, yeah. it just becomes, uh, it's like the old boxes in the attic. They're there, but they're not productive, right? So, um, yeah. <laughs> book club, we do all those kinds of books, and and you know the 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 it's amazing to watch the 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 people come back to life almost, you know. Uh, and these are some grizzled vets that we have, you know, that are participating in this thing we do here. Uh, yet, those are things that, for whatever reason, they're not taught anywhere. The financial literacy stuff is, it's just such a huge deal. When you look back now and you think about some of the things that we've studied in school, how there is nothing about the things that we talk about on this podcast every week is just absolutely crazy, man. Yeah, it's insane. It, it really is. And it, that resonates with me because of the financial planning background. I view everything as financial planning. So even real estate, like you're saying, a lot of the principles are really just 
if you can't save money, you can't be successful at real estate. If you don't know how to have um, a good cash position or manage your credit properly, you can't be good at real estate. You don't have to start off with good credit, but long term, you need to know how to manage yourself, manage your finances. Some people get into real estate and they're bad asset managers or bad money, personal money managers, and they over lever themselves. They do things that just will lead you down a rabbit hole of disaster. So it, it really is um, doing that. Since you guys do have a, a book club, one book I'll recommend for the club for people who are interested in affordable housing is something, this book called the Section 8 Bible. Um, I think they have three, they have three uh, versions now, three editions. The third edition just came out. I haven't even read the third edition yet, but the first two are, are so magical. I'm sure the third is, is amazing. It was started by these, um, these two guys from Philly, which is, which is where I'm from, blue collar guys. They uh, got together and partnered back in around 2005 to 2008, and they acquired 400 or 500 rental properties in a three or four year period wow. um, using a bird strategy, all Section 8. And they talk about their trials and tribulations. It, it's just an amazing uh, book, and it will it teaches you everything about the birth strategy and um, you know affordable housing, Section Eight, residential, that hustle and bustle. Um, it, it's just an amazing book. So many gems in this book, and I don't recommend. I wouldn't recommend uh, you know a book if I didn't absolutely love it. This book is you know. It, it's amazing. I just recommended it. Some of my students asked me uh, last night during one of our group sessions, should, should I get into a, a Section 8 course or should, you know, should I do this? I said, no, just read the book, read the Section 8 Bible. There is no course better than the Section 8 Bible. So uh, we're definitely going to put that on, on the list for sure. Um, I'm curious, your, your first deal you had said that you were a thousand dollars a month positive cash flow. Uh, yeah. what, what did that deal look like? Yeah, let's let's talk about that deal. So I followed my mentor's advice to the T. I bought a a, a triplex right in essentially my backyard. It was uh, in a neighborhood that was bordering the neighborhood that I grew up in, but I was very familiar with it called Mount Airy. If you're from the Philadelphia area, so I bought a triplex there, uh, FHA. I did a, a nice house hack there and I did a seller's assist negotiation on that deal as well. So I had the seller kick in, I think 3% towards the closing costs. So at this time I was, uh, I was working for AXA advisors as a, as a uh, financial planner. So I was a hundred percent commission, um, maybe 27. I was making like $25,000 a year living at home, making, you know, just just barely scraping by but all of my money i was saving 50 percent. just first i started saving 10 percent of my check and then i kept increasing it putting 50 percent of every check um away so i took this uh money i put seven thousand dollars down into this deal all in because i got those closing cost credits and i did the fha so seven thousand into this deal it was a turnkey property which i kind of swear by if you're just getting started a lot of people are very, you know, enticed by the HDTV. You know, I wanted to go, go into a full gut rehab. You're probably not ready if it's your very first deal. Um, you can get through it with the proper mentorship, of course. But if you're just freelancing, kind of doing it by yourself, go get a turnkey, do a FHA, get a multifamily, get some cash flow, and then go. 
But I did that play, turnkey, got it from a guy who um, – this guy was interesting. He actually had spent time – I think he was in jail for maybe 10 years. And he learned how to build houses in, in prison, essentially, in a program. Came out – he had 10 properties at the time. So wow. he wanted to offload this and then get more properties. So I took his deal, and he had, like, decked it out. So I was going to live in one unit and rent the other two and live for free. That was like my goal because I was 100% commission. I just wanted some stability. But I ended up getting this job in New York at the boutique firm. So I rented the whole building out. And uh, instead of living for free, I was now making a, you know $1,000 a month in positive cash flow off of this deal and you know moved up to, to New York. And started working at the boutique firm. And once I got a taste of that, you know, cash flow, it was uh, not too long before I had another duplex and then another deal and another deal. Yeah. So on that on that first one, how much cash did you have to put into updating it? None. I mean, it was it was uh, it was like broom sweet. sweepable. It was broom sweepable. When I say turnkey, I mean they give you the keys. You take the keys. You give them to the tenant. They give you the cash, and uh, you get out of the way. So I didn't put any any money into this deal. Um, it, it was moving ready, and it actually had it had two tenants in it in the the top two units. I was going to live in the bottom unit. One of the tenants moved out because um, they were just kind of skittish, and I've had that unit leased back up in in two weeks. Showed it two or three times, leased back up. So <clears throat> Brian mentioned the Burr method, right? Buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, and um, there, there are a lot of folks that, you know, take these courses and, and, you know, read a book or two on it and they jump into these full scale renovations. Like you had mentioned, there's a lot of deals out there. I don't care how hot the market is. I don't care how cold the market is. There are deals like the one Brian is describing, where if you're smart with financing and you've managed your credit, you can get in with very little money down, especially with a seller assist. Uh, and you're able to cash flow these things day one. Uh, you know, yeah. as you were as you were gearing up for that that transaction, what, what metrics were you looking at? Were you concerned with a cash on cash return, or was it straight appreciation, or just the net cash flow? What what were what was kind of the priority for you at that point? I kept it really simple, honestly. Like I looked at the uh, principal insurance uh, and, and taxes. And uh, and the uh, and you know the interest, and as if that was less than my monthly nut that was coming in, you know that monthly check that was coming in, mm. I just figured there was a spread. So it was it was a pure spread play. I was using uh, I think rent. I was using some website um, to to look at like the rental income. I could have been using Zillow at the time. Um, there are a, a couple other websites that you can tap into. But just looking at the rental income, I had three units. They could each rent for about $700 a month. Um, the property was selling for 130 k It's a triplex. Taxes were $900 a year, $1,200 a year, something around there. So it was a play where I knew that I would have about $1,000 a month going out and 2000 coming in. And that was good enough for me. I mean, was I scared? Of course. On your first deal, you're petrified. Um, you're in your in your 20s. You kind of don't know what you're doing. Uh, I didn't really have the right mentorship at that time. Even my, uh, you know, my Columbia mentor, it, he didn't I didn't really involve him in the process. 
until I started to get really, really serious about it and get past my first deal. So um, you're just horrified, right? But you got to jump and let that, that net appear. It, it seemed like a reasonable enough spread for me to, you know, even if I was wrong about the rent by two, three hundred dollars, I was still going to be very cash flow positive. And I was locking this on a 30 year note. So it, it just seemed like the right play to me. I felt that it was a safe deal. Um, there was that feeling when you're a new investor, you kind of feel like as soon as the keys get in your hands, the building's just going to collapse or catch on fire. Or yep. you, you start imagining these things. But uh, <laughs> the checks come in, the people will pay you the rent. Um, you'll get over these hurdles. And I think it's important to go turnkey for one other reason. A big part of the business and the birth strategy that people uh, leave out is the rental part, right? When you're renting it, you're the landlord. So the biggest skill set you can have is not necessarily how to build properties. It's actually how to be a good landlord, how to tenant screen, how to manage your tenants, how to property manage, all of these long-term monetization skill sets that people overlook. And you're getting those skill sets. You're starting to to develop them for the long term right away when you go turnkey. Don't overlook that piece. You can always circle back to the construction element after you mastered being a landlord. Then you know you're going to be successful long term. So many people do the other thing first. They do it in reverse. They learn how to build. Then they find out they're a bad landlord and that they don't like being a landlord. And then they burn out. Yep. It's not easy as you as you start to scale. Um, it's tricky, right? When you're you're managing those types of, of assets. I had a, a deal um, we were talking about offline before we got on, folks, that uh, Brian has a, a course which we're going to get into when he does coaching where he has a lot of folks that are investing from a great distance. Uh, and they're investing in the affordable housing space, which uh, is an a, a amazing place to be if you, you have it on lockdown. And uh, I have found personally one of the, the challenges and one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you was when uh, I have made investments that are not right in my backyard. Uh, if there's not the opportunity to scale where, uh, you know, a, a town up in Pennsylvania where I had bought a building, it was a great deal. Uh, it had uh, two commercial uh, offices. It had a, a 3,000 square foot warehouse, a nice parking lot, and three two-bedroom apartments. Um, I bought the deal for low in the low 400s, uh, right across from a park in the courthouse. Uh, but for me, there wasn't there wasn't enough units available in the town for me to scale. So what ended up happening is you're you're trying to manage and keep your tenants happy. You've got to bring on uh, a super, but it, there's just not enough units to meet that demand, right? So yeah. as you started to grow your portfolio, uh, I'm, I'm curious, did you reach back and, and seek capital from uh, you know your investment days? Did you go back into that kind of book and business and, and raise capital or was it one at a time and, and more of an organic thing for you? For me, the bank became my friend, right? I, I think the bank in many ways can be cheaper especially some of these national portfolio lenders that are out there, they have an insatiable appetite, right? They're, they're essentially doing these deals. They're writing notes on these properties. Then they're packaging, you know, $500 million in loans every six months and selling it to, you know, the big land trusts uh, out there. So if you get in good with them, 
and you can show them that you're, you're going to be able to diversify their books. So I was building out Philly and most of their books of business are in New York, North Jersey and other, you know, DC, some of the different major cities. So I was able to diversify their book of business and it, it just ended up being a great relationship where they became a, a steady stream of capital and we were able to scale in. But I used, um, you know, a, com a combination of portfolio lenders and hard money uh, lending relationships to scale. Um, it's a, it can be a bit of a tightrope, and it's certainly not the most comfortable path forward. Certainly, um, if you can raise like family office money, it can be a bit more comfortable. But that was just the path uh, that I took um, that ended up working out for me. So how many? So I didn't necessarily reach back. How many units do you have or have you had at, at the peak? How many units under management? Over 300, uh, over 300 uh, properties. Um, so however many units and, and we can count units differently because I've done, I've done a little bit of everything and it's, uh, it's part, partly because I like to experiment a bit, but partly because, you know, you want to find whatever's the most profitable for you or the strategy that, that meets your needs. The only thing that I haven't, uh, dabbled in too much is student uh, rentals mm -hmm. um, just because the turnover can be um, it's kind of a guaranteed turnover like an annual turnover some people love it some people kind of hate it but section eight regular market tenants um, co-living has been really really profitable um, taking a property and breaking it down into a series of master suites and then renting them out essentially by the room um, that has been extremely profitable and hasn't been as labor intensive from a management uh, perspective as anticipated. So that has been good too. But depending on how you're counting the units, it could be you know anywhere from 500 to maybe 700 units uh, because a lot of these buildings are multifamily. So uh, an another reason, Brian, I wanted to to get on with you today is is the the current state of the market. So. If we wow. can spend a, a, a minute talking about that, you know, um, real estate is a cycle and yeah. people forget, it's amazing to me how people forget that this is a cycle and it's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to come back. This is just what happens, right? The trick yeah. is trying to identify when is the turn going to happen, right? Um, when it does happen, where are we going to pivot? into next to make sure that we're staying ahead of the curve. So what I'm seeing is I think we're headed into uh, a really scary inflationary period. I think Absolutely. that rates are going to be increasing. Uh, so what we're looking to do is to diversify a bit and get uh, the portfolio balanced where uh, you know we have a lot of different assets that are uh, commercial longer term leases right and when you get into these inflationary and hyperinflationary periods you're you're technically devaluing your asset every year because for the most part you're going to have especially if you have like corporate tenants you're you're looking at 10% bumps every 5 years right um you know if it's it's more in the mom and pop of the franchise operators you get 2 3% a year but that's it when inflation is is at 4 already 4.7 i think and then 5 6 7 8 you're actually losing money each year on on those those deals. So I yeah. believe that it's time to start thinking about getting into uh, assets where we don't have these long term leases, right? For a, yeah. a while, the long term lease was the holy grail. It was like you know, oh, yeah. everybody wanted. 
Um, yeah. But but I, that's starting to scare me a little bit. So what are your thoughts about where we are as as far as a snapshot of the market? What do you think's you know on the horizon? Well, I think um, I think COVID COVID really shook things up, right? So if you look at like March 2020, that credit crunch. Um, in the in the non-QM space in particular. So for all, all the burst strategy enthusiasts, I know uh you know developers who had $10 million cash out refinances teed up uh for a closing on Friday and they got a call on Thursday saying, uh sorry, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not gonna close. Yeah. So I think we're in a in a position where as the economy uh gets worse, there's gonna be a bit of uh tightening from the credit uh side of things lenders get more skittish it becomes harder to do a deal you need better credit to do deals uh, there are less buyers of properties um on, on the residential side it it can i think pricing if we're talking residential it will kind of stay relatively stable um for the most part depending on what what environment you're in i mean we're looking at um you know multiples of income so if you're in some place like california where the housing cost is like 10 15 some in some areas 20x the uh average annual income where there's a long way down for those housing prices to go if you're in philadelphia um baltimore some of these affordable housing areas where you know the housing cost may be five or six x uh the the average median income of the area well the housing prices are going to be relatively stable so from how from how i view it for what i do uh, an affordable housing standpoint it, it's going to be a little bit shaky um i think there's going to be a lot of opportunity with the end of the foreclosure moratorium and the the wave of maybe i think three million americans are behind on their, their mortgages right now and facing foreclosure so there's going to be a lot of opportunity to use some creative financing strategies, sub to um, land contracts and different types of seller financing strategies to acquire uh, massive amounts of rental properties in affordable areas. And as long as you know how to just put tenants in and, and hang on to them, you can you can weather the storm uh, pretty well. And if you weather the storm, then you're going to be able to buy a lot of real estate, you know, at the bottom. Lastly, you also have. Uh, a lot of these i buyers are just getting crushed right now. I mean, if you haven't seen Zillow um, lately, I mean they're just getting absolutely destroyed. I think they shut down their i buying uh, division. They're letting go of a quarter of their staff, and you're starting to see pricing is going to fall in some of these areas. So where is it going to fall? Just look at the the multiples of the annual median earned income. If if you're over 10, 15 x, people can't afford that housing. In a in a uh, in a recession, you know, environment in an inflation filled environment, they can't afford it, so the pricing has to come down. So it, it's going to be interesting. It's kind of hard. I wish I had that crystal ball. I uh, if if we both had it, we'd be billionaires, you know, pretty soon. But um, definitely, I think affordable housing is a place that's going to become more and more attractive. As uh, the more pain you're in, the more uh, attractive affordable housing is. The more people who are losing jobs and in pain they go down and start getting into the affordable housing uh, properties as well. So it drives up demand. All of this pain drives up demand for affordable housing. So if you're holding it, uh, you're going to make some money. So you covered a lot of ground there. Um, the, 
metric that you're using, which I love, and I have not heard before, by the way, and I've been doing this for a long time. So kudos to you for it. Uh, you're looking at the, is it the household median income? And then you're going six, eight, 10 X. Is that the deal? Yeah. The household median income. Exactly. So you're just looking at basic. I like to keep things simple with, uh, with financial planning, with real estate, with numbers in general, just keep it simple. Simple things don't break at scale. So simply, you know, if the average family, let's say Philly, right? The average family uh, might have of two or three might have a household income of like, let's, let's call it 60,000. And we're just throwing numbers out there. So if, if it's 60,000, then they can afford maybe five, six X that. So they can afford about $300,000, uh, $350,000 worth of property on average to yep. go out, take out a mortgage, and they can make that payment comfortably. If you take that uh, same number, 60,000, there, there are areas of California where that number is 60,000 or 55,000, but the housing is 2 million, 3 yep. million. They can't afford that. So when the average American can't afford the price of the residential housing, the price must fall it, it, because it's a supply and demand um, scenario. So there's just not enough demand for that supply of housing. The people at the top are going to lose jobs. They're going to lose those houses, but who's going to step into them? Uh, nobody, because they can't afford them. So you you really have to look at some of these cities that have this, it, it's kind of like a PE ratio in stocks. You look at some of these stocks and are trading at 125X, you know, from a price to earnings ratio. And you're just like, how, how is this going to continue? Uh, it's kind of a similar thought process with, with housing. There's affordability. And once you get very far outside of it, when the economy gets hit bad, that housing price has to fall back into an affordable range for the average American because the average American drives demand, not the, you know, the wealthier to 1% or, or the top 5%. They're not driving all of the demand. The average American is driving the demand. So um, another reason I, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with this, this model what started happening here, folks, is some of the big funds uh, and some of the bigger companies that Brian mentioned earlier uh, started going in and they started doing what I call buying payments. And they were not looking at those sound underlying metrics because there was a need for velocity of money and people were out buying. You know, when you see these mega funds buying huge tranches of single family homes to me, that was like, oh gosh, that's a red flag, right? Because now, because they're taking that product off the market, the prices are appreciating at a, a rate that there are no sound metrics behind it to support. Um, but as the, the properties are coming off the books, the prices for that period of time are going to go up, right? That's just what's going to happen. And uh, there are some towns where these funds own a humongous percentage of the housing stock, right? So uh, a, a nice safeguard that Ryan's talking about is just take the household median income. What's like the what's the number that you don't want to exceed? Is it eight times, six times, ten times, four times? I would say I would say once you get past ten, you're starting to get into a a range where you're going to be susceptible to to shock, to serious market shock. Uh, if you're in like the sixes, the you know sevens you're gonna be essentially below the national average. So if you take all of the top cities, if we took like the top 50 real estate cities in America, 
half are going to be more than half are going to be below like that that seven to well that ten percent mark. More than half are going to be below. So you're going to be within that average range of affordability uh, nationally. So I would say around ten percent is going to keep you safe if you're below that threshold. The further you get beyond it, it's just like a risk uh, reward kind of a ratio thing. You're just going to get exponentially uh, in worse shape if the economy takes a dive. So if you're at like 15, 20 X, I mean, you just think about it. Um, not that many people can afford that. And we, and we see this overseas too. If you go to um, places like Paris, uh, France, like nobody can afford a house. They're, these places become renter nations because nobody can afford the housing. Yeah. So it just stays in the hands of the wealthy and everybody else rents. Nobody buys anything. So when you're doing this evaluation, are you taking um, uh, a do not exceed, let's say, 10x of the national average? Or are you looking at the household median income for that particular location? I'm looking at it for this particular location because I want to know if the people who, who live there can afford the house or the people who want to live there, uh, which are reflected by the people who are already there. Most people will buy a house and then if they want to upgrade, they'll get like a bigger house in the same area though, right? They don't want to leave all of their friends and family. Like if I, I live in New York now, if I wanted to get a bigger house, I get a bigger house in New York. So I want to see out of that local area, what's the median income? And then I'm, I'm going on like a, a, a basic multiple. So in Philly, 50, 60,000 average ha- uh, family household income, um, median household income. And then I'm multiplying that by five, six real estate. Okay. Prices, properties are selling like in Philly, you could get a, a nice uh, property in South Philly for 300,000. It's still in the affordable range when that gets to 500,000. Yeah. Well, you know, now people are stretching. Then when we add in, you know, your expectation of, well, I think rates are going to rise. Well, then that note is going way up on half a million. It, it adds even more pressure for the price to go down. Uh, on the housing. So, so, you know, you just have to keep an eye out on it. So guys, that is gold, what Brian just gave you. Okay. If you're able to stick to six, seven times to be conservative, the yeah. household median income for that particular town or city um, and your cash flow positive to whatever extent or percent that makes you comfortable. I see people that want to see 20% on their debt service. I see people who want to see 50%. I see people who want to see 10%, whatever the the number is that makes you comfortable. uh, Those two metrics should keep you on the right side of right for the most part. Um, That that is absolutely outstanding advice, Bri. So we're seeing uh, over the last maybe eight months as things started to emerge, uh, this kind of family office money and these, you know, bridge lenders and these kind of middle market operators are filling a void. The, the, the big institutional lenders are not really lending unless it's a completely stabilized asset. And I mean, stabilized asset. Yeah. Um, so do you think that the big money gets in the game here at any point before this next turn or are they going to sit on the sidelines? I I'd expect big money to sit on the sidelines because I've seen them do that, you know, February, March, 2020. I mean, when it, when it gets shaky because they have so much uh, capital, 
and reserves, they can sit on the sideline. Like they're playing the long game. They're playing the Warren Buffett game. Like they're, they'll wait for it to go all the way to the bottom and buy it back for pennies. It's kind of real estate can be in these big market shifts. Like we're talking about a game of musical chairs who owns it, you or the bank. Well, you own it now and then the bank owns it, but they, they're not in the business of managing real estate. They're in the business of lending on it. So then it goes back to the new buyers. Uh, but I'd expect them to step out and, you know, these players, like you're saying, the portfolio lenders, the bridge lenders, uh, the people who are kind of small enough to underwrite, we'll call it, they're going to they're gonna, uh, do the underwriting. And I think if anything, they'll get pinched out. Um, by the the bigger money because the bigger that faucet can go off that's uh it's one thing i hadn't seen before and i didn't really factor in until uh you know march of 2020 but you know when the big land trust turns that faucet off and says we're not buying those loans that you see where the money is the veil the veil is removed you think your hard money lender has money and then they tell you well we only have a million dollars we're actually uh we actually sell that every month to this other guy who has 3 million and then he packages it and sells it to this guy who has 30 and it all goes up to the land trust and then it's in your 401k. So yeah. uh, it's it's just a crazy uh, cycle. So that, that's another golden piece of, of advice. Uh, I was, I was around, you know, I've been in the game since literally I could, I could walk, you know, it, it was, uh, it was in the family. So, uh, after seeing what happened in particularly in 2008, what Brian is talking about, it literally happens overnight. Literally, oh, yeah. my uh, the analogy we use is is has the switch been flipped? As fast as the lights come on and go off, that is how fast they stop buying that paper. And when they stop buying the paper, it is over. There is no adaptation oh. period. It stops. Um, so I, I think 2024, late 2024 into 2025, um, that's, that's where I'm, I'm at this point trying to, to nail kind of where and when we want to be highly liquid. That's, that's the place and the time where I think that you're going to find, because what we're also seeing is these, these, uh, these middle operators that are providing the, the debt at higher rates and taking a little bit more risk. They're not going long. They're not giving 10-year deals here. They're doing two-year, two one-year, three-year deals because um, when the music stops, I think they have a pretty good sense for what's going to happen there also. They want to make sure that they're on the other side of this. Um, and, and that's just going to be, a, I think, a watershed moment in the country where folks are going to have an opportunity to really do some damage if they're positioned right. So that, that's great advice. Um, let's talk about geographically are you buying properties all within a certain distance from where you're located are you a proponent of investing outside of your local market what's your secret sauce so i look at it like a money manager right so what is a what is a, a portfolio manager do well they're going to look at all the stocks on the market and they're going to try to find the undervalued stocks so they're going to buy the undervalued stocks and they're going to hold them until they reach fair market value and then they'll sell them and they'll make a profit spread. I essentially look to do that with real estate. So I have properties in Texas. I'm in, I'm in uh, New York. I have properties in Texas, Baltimore, Philly, Jersey. I have some in New York. I'll go anywhere where I think the, uh, the money can go extremely far. 
because I want to, I'm a value investor. So if I can go down to Baltimore and buy shells right by John Hopkins Hospital, where I know there are going to be residents and people moving in and economic activity, and I can buy them for 30K, put 30 grand into them, and they're worth 80. But I know in five years, when something's worth 80K, which is, if you think about it in real estate terms, it's below the inherent value of the bricks and of the, you know, if you try to do a ground up deal, it's going to cost you 140,000 or 150,000. So it's below inherent value. So I know if I hold that $80,000 property, it can double or triple in value over the course of 10 years. And that's how a lot of people become multimillionaires is they pour half a million into $30,000 shells 10 times, they hold them. And then those properties triple, quadruple in value. So I, I focus on building systems that allow you to scale out of town and go where your money can go the furthest. If you're living in New York or California or some of these extremely inexpensive cities, you're constantly kicking yourself saying, oh, I see this guy on the internet. He can do these deals, but I can't get a property for 30 grand here. Of course you can't, but that doesn't mean you can't scale uh, out of town with the right systems. It is 2020, 2021 going on 2022. Um, I do most of my deals through the smartphone. Yep. And I started doing it that way because even when I was scaling Philly, going from one to two deals a month to then going to 10 deals a month. When I started going down to Philly, driving from New York, I would get there and I couldn't even see 10 deals in a day because the contractors are pulling at you. The people are pulling at you. There's the traffic. You got to get lunch. I started being able to stay home and do more from my smartphone than I could even go in there. So then I dedicated myself to building the systems that allowed me to see more from home. You sit around in your underwear and manage more properties than you could boots on the ground. And that I think is transformative for really any real estate investor today. That's what makes us better than the people who were doing this in the eighties when they didn't have any technology, they couldn't do it any other way. We can do it a better way today. So uh, I so wholeheartedly believe in what you're saying. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a company that, you know, we've, we've built over the last 20 years and and my whole team we just picked up and and basically started over uh we nice. took the best elements of the the local community brokerage but we feel that real estate is so ripe for disruption and there are so many tools right now in the toolbox people are not even thinking about we we're we're building a model now that is straight up scalable and allows us to penetrate markets across the country uh, because we think that there's that type of opportunity. And you're right, you can do it in your underwear or up in your vacation home or out by the fire pit. And, uh, you know, one thing people got a good taste of outside, of course, all the difficulties during coronavirus, but people got a good taste of, you know what, I can do this. Like I can slow it down, right? I, I can do this a different way and, and not have to be in that manic position like we talked about earlier, people who are tied to a desk 18 hours a day and they're grinding to build equity, but it's not theirs. Uh, we all fall into that trap. I, I was you know, guilty, number one person guilty of it. I was so busy and I was running in so many directions that I felt I couldn't, I couldn't even think about not working seven days a week. And yeah. my whole model has changed now. Like uh, I'm getting a lot more time with the family and I'm way more productive because I'm leveraging some of these uh, digital 
tools that previously weren't available to us. So again, I think you're you're spot on. Is is this some of the things that you're talking about in the 24-7 cash flow playbook? Absolutely. Uh, I talk about how I was able to scale in that playbook. I essentially give you my blueprint for uh, um, working myself out of that nine to five. I call it a firing your boss. That's essentially what we preach at the uh, 24-7 cash flow university, how you can fire your boss and replace your income with cash flowing rental properties. That's essentially, you know, our mission, our path forward uh, for our students. But yeah, we talk about how you can leverage this stuff out of town um, and tap into these systems that allow you to do more uh, and stop working so hard for uh, way too little. So it's definitely 100% focused on that. So talk to me a little bit about the difference between the university and the playbook. What are some of the, the added benefits through the university? The university. So I, you know, I scaled, I took uh, about a hundred, a hundred thousand dollars, which was saved up over a long period of time and scaled that into, you know, 300 plus property portfolio by doing that burst strategy, literally over and over and over again, recycling the same capital. So I took all the lessons learned through that process, starting off from like everybody does, school of hard knocks, taking your money, hiring the cheapest contractor you can, having them run off with 40 grand, and then waking up and saying, whoa, I got to get serious or I'm going to be out of this game. So showing you how to not get burned by contractors, teaching you the ins and outs of what real estate is from even a beginner beginner's uh, perspective, all the way to how to scale up a national operation how to deal with portfolio lenders, how to manage contractors. Um, Pre-COVID, I was managing over 150 in-house con- uh, contractors, 20,000 square foot warehouse, 10 trucks, a fleet management uh, team with fleet management software, programmed out of warehouse, uh, inventory tracking system. I put 250 security cameras all across North Philly to watch all of my properties and protect them from break-ins. I've done so many things. And I put all of this information into the course so people can tap in. And we also have a add-on service. I found that even with all of the information, all of the knowledge, there's still one hurdle that almost every investor deals with, whether they're in their backyard investing or not. If they still have uh, that nine to five, I'll I'll call it a burden for lack of a better term, but if they're still in the nine to five, and they have that time split, they're unable to get out and see enough deals and move fast enough to get properties for pennies on the dollar. So they just think pennies on a dollar, you know, those properties don't exist. I can't get that off of MLS. I I don't, you know, I don't want to have to cold call and do all these things. They think it doesn't exist. I've gotten more properties for pennies on a dollar off of MLS than I have anywhere at the auction, like literally anywhere. And the way that I was able to do it was by being first. It's, it's literally the early bird gets the worm. Being to the deal first. As soon as it's listed, analyzing it, getting eyes and ears on it, boots on the ground, getting back videos, putting together inspection reports, putting together cash flow analysis reports, saying yay, nay, getting the offer out within the first 12 to 24 hours and getting that, that offer to that seller allows you to lock up these properties that are mispriced faster than the competition and if you do that over and over again, you can make, you know, 40, 50, $60,000 per deal, even off of the MLS. So I created a system where my out of town investors can tap into my in-house team where we'll put boots on the ground. They can schedule my people to go out and see properties for them. 
we get the videos back, we run the analysis reports, and we get those reports right in front of them. All they have to do is say yay or nay, tell their realtor to put out the offer, and they're able to get out 10, 15 offers a week, whereas before they could barely get out to see one property a week. And that's the difference between them getting that first deal that's going to make them forty to $50,000 off of the, you know, the jump versus just never getting a deal, never getting started. So I've removed that hurdle to allow people to invest from out of town. So how long is the university? Is it a set amount of courses? Is it one-on-one coaching plus courses? What What is the structure? Sure. So what it comes with is you get, you get uh, the access to the, the coursework. So that's all on teachable.com. Uh, that's about 50 hours right now, but it's always growing. I'm adding to it. Right now I'm adding a a uh, about five hours of creative financing coursework, which is covering sub two land contracts, all of that fun stuff, creative financing. But so it's living and breathing. It's lifetime access to that. We do, um, it comes with, it's a 16 week uh, access in terms of the, the live uh, group sessions. So we do for 16 weeks, we do a covered course. Like last week we did how to secure your rental properties when you're out of town and investing in C-class neighborhoods. So I have like, if I'm in the hood of Baltimore, I have strategies for boarding up that property or putting steel doors and uh, security guards on that property, security cameras so that you don't get broken into. So we covered that in the last session. And then the next week we'll do like an open office hours Q&A where I just sit there, anybody can join and we talk about whatever you want. And those are sometimes even more fun than the, the guided sessions. Uh, that goes for 16 weeks. You get lifetime access to the coursework. And um, the if you want the, that hands-on, us putting boots on the ground, helping you out with your deals, uh, getting you off uh, the ground from that perspective, that's uh, that's subscription-based. So that, that comes with like, uh, you start with like a three-month subscription and then you can always renew that. And we'll put our boots on the ground to go look, look at deals that you're interested in, coordinate where you're a realtor and get boots on the ground out to see these properties. And you have a professional, you know, analyst team reviewing these deals, telling you don't buy this property. This wall is going to cave in or no, this is a good deal. Structurally sound, go ahead and move forward. And then we'll also put our guys on your deal. If you're doing a rehab out of town, you need to go in and inspect these properties, you know, every two, three days, you need to make sure the workers are doing the work. Uh, so many people get burned by not understanding that in real estate, you expect what you inspect. And if you don't see it, it ain't done, <laughs> period. Like there, there is no, hey, yeah, we're ready for the inspection. We did it already. If you don't see the pictures or the videos, it's not done. So we'll send our guys in boots on the ground to review these deals, make sure the contractors are getting the work done and send you progress reports so that you know that you're kind of doubly covered, even if you're out of town and can't get to these properties, or even if you're in town and you're working and your time is worth more uh, to you by focusing on your job than it is, you know, hustling and bustling, getting in and out of these properties. So, uh, again, it, it's it's kind of crazy the timing and how aligned we are. Um, we we wrote a proprietary software that's part of the new company that we're we're getting real close to going to market with that ties into every MLS throughout the country and allows you to put customized deal metrics in. Um, and when the deals hit instantly based on your metrics, it'll do the math and populate it for you. And it has a buy now feature on it. I would love 
to take your course. Um, I'd love to, to participate in that. And maybe you and I can have a broader discussion on some opportunities because the synergies between us, man, it, it's remarkable. I absolutely love what you're doing. Yeah, no, I'd be I'd be open to that. Definitely. We need to we should definitely have a side conversation. Um, I love what you're doing. I, this is uh, maybe been arguably the most fun I've had on <laughs> on a, a recent podcast because of where your head is at. I mean, we're, we definitely have a lot um, in common. And I'd love to hear more about, you know, what you guys are doing, because it's uh, I think you're so right on the ball. This is kind of one of the they've almost redone banking before getting the real estate. It's so antiquated um you know of an industry and of a business model that there's so much room for improvement in real estate and then the next wave of movers and shakers they are going to change everything i mean it's, it's going to give that advantage and that's what's needed because you you kind of touched on this the industry that we're in it's a mom and pop industry you'll hear that word all the time mom and pop mom and pop but what does that mean that means the average investor it, they own two properties it's your, your mom, your dad, they own, you know, a couple properties and that's yep. it. They can't scale to a hundred property portfolio because they don't have the software, the technology, the system, the know-how or the capital, right? Then you have your institutions. Zillow just tried to do this and there are other iBuyers. They want to come in and dump $500 million every six months into the market, but they're too big because they can't do it on $50,000 deal after $50,000 deal. Those deals are too small. They can't get low enough to the ground. And while they can hire a bunch of people from Harvard that are brilliant, they're too smart to realize that real estate's simple. And they overlook some simple metrics, like we talked about, like the, the multiple uh, metric that end up getting the whole company burned, like Zillow got burned, and they collapse. So they're too big to get in this game. You really need people who've done it who've uh, lived it and breathed it like you have, uh, and were kind of born and brought up in it, to come in and, and really institutionalize this whole industry so that more people uh, can tap in and, and really reap the rewards. But it's gonna happen through people like us, not from the Zillows of the world. And certainly the mom and pops, they, they just can't do it. It's really the people like us who are gonna innovate it. So there's there's been historically the super smart, programmers that are creating these unbelievable programs and systems but when you're a deal maker they're clunky and they don't work because they don't know what it's like to be a broker for 20 years or 25 years and then you've got the other side that is so resistant any tech that they've dabbled in is so simple that it's just antiquated already because we are we are the generation i believe that will unlock this game for everybody else. It's going to take it away from the few. And I believe that we have the ability and almost duty, honestly, to show people there's a different way. And then you sprinkle blockchain and a little cryptocurrency into the mix. And wow, is this yeah. thing like it, it man, I'm, I'm real excited for you. Um, I, I love what you're doing. Congratulations on all of your success. Um, I definitely want to reach out, uh, if that's okay, offline and, and have a definitely. conversation. Brian, what's the best way for people to find you and, and to reach out? Uh, you can find me on in a few different areas. You can find me on Instagram. Um, that's 247 Cashflow University. Uh, so you can find me on Instagram. I post a lot of free content there. So I'm trying to you know put up videos literally daily with just inspiration, 
uh, free game, morning motivation. If I'm just walking and thinking, which I, and uh, thinking about real estate, which I pretty much am every day, uh, I'll stop and, and drop a lesson there. I have a, a YouTube channel, Brian Loves Cashflow, uh, B R I A N Loves Cashflow. So you can check that out. I'm posting videos there as well. Um, and those are the best places to reach me. You can um, shoot me a, a message at um, Brian at 247cashflowuniversity.com. If you want to reach me via email, um, you can shoot me a text, 215-987-5528. Shoot me a text with real estate questions. If you guys have any questions, uh, you know, I, I do this up. I live and breathe it. I love helping people who are uh, interested in C-Class. And I, I work so hard at this because I love the the neighborhoods that we're rebuilding, right? We're going into, you know, Baltimore, Philly, and some of these some of these neighborhoods that have been disinvested over the course of time, Camden, New Jersey, just areas that need um, economic development and we're rebuilding it. And it's the, one of the most ec economically friendly uh, or eco-friendly things you can do, right? Because you think about it, you can go and do a ground up deal, but from a, a carbon footprint standpoint, that's not as eco-friendly as going into an existing building and refurbishing it, rehabbing it and putting it back together. It's better for the, the environment. It's better for the community. The more people we uh, put back into these neighborhoods, the more money's bouncing around the neighborhoods at the local corner stores, the bodegas. It's, it's just bringing these uh, neighborhoods back to life. It's restoring community pride. And that's a big part of uh, my mission and why I do what I do. I could flip houses in the nicest parts of every city. I certainly have the contractors and the skill sets and the systems to do it. But it's part of my my uh, life mission to rebuild these neighborhoods that are like the ones that I grew up in. Uh, Brian, again, congrats on all the success. Brian Grimes, folks, the founder of 24-7 Cashflow University. Uh, tremendous value today. I really can't thank you enough. And I'm going to reach out to you. Uh, just too many synergies for us to not talk, man. Congratulations, really, on everything you're yeah. doing. Thanks. And I, I appreciate you having me on here. Uh, I don't take it lightly. So definitely. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun and I got a lot of value uh, from, you know, the synergy that we have as well. Just learning more about what you're doing. So kudos on, on what you've built and your platform as well. My absolute pleasure. Everyone out there, Brian Grimes, check him out. And as always, folks, stay safe.